We're on the air. Oh, wow. We're here again. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Good, Alex. How are you? I am very good. And I'm excited that we're welcoming a guest today. But before we, um, well, well, we'll give him a name. We've got Peter Elkins with us. Hi, Peter. Uh, and I will introduce you formally, properly after I uh, introduce Jeff, who is, uh, this is our weekly podcast, School of Thought Victoria. And we are coming to you from Victoria, BC, where Jeff runs the School of Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry uh, in its eighth year. And we are into maybe our 35th or so episode of School of Thought. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. Today is a good day. I mean, every day is a good day on School of Thought. But today's a really good day because we've got Peter with us. And Peter is a friend of both me and Jeff. Um, and we hold him in high regard. He is, I mean, in a very tiny nutshell, uh, Peter, you're a mentor of entrepreneurs, kind of, but um, you have made, you have an interesting, diverse, dynamic, and very unique path to where you've ended up. I'm actually going to read, I'm going to read your bio, your short little handle here uh, that tells us you're a Canadian-based global thought leader in community economic development and local investing. Uh, and a couple of years ago, 2019, I think, you sat on the BC government's Emerging Economy Task Force. Uh, and just before we started to roll tape, you were saying uh, that you're an associate professor at Royal Roads University. So multi-pedigreed. Uh, so we've got Peter here today to talk with. And of course, I'm Alex Van Tal, uh, author, uh, writer, mother and a parent of two Psy learners. My second son will be joining Jeff and his crew next year at Psy. So welcome everybody. Excellent to have you here. And uh, yeah, Peter, we're gonna put you on the hot seat today. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> he's nourished, he's had a big snack, he's settled in. Uh, Peter, we've caught you in a really busy week, actually. You were just saying before we started recording, what are you up to now? Yeah, so really in the last year, I've been working on an economic framework um, for a more uh, robust economy as we come out of COVID. And uh, so the last two weeks, we've launched the, uh, the um, formula and the and the, uh, and, the, and the strategy, and now we're just in conversations with foundations and endowment trustees, government and philanthropists and uh, economic developers, and just, uh, you know, really getting this, uh, getting this framework out into, the, uh, into what started the BC community that's quickly become the Canadian community that's quickly become the international community. So lots of interesting conversations in, uh, and, uh, just kind of, you know, finding a home for it is, is really what we're trying to do now. So you, you and I and you and Jeff have been talking about this economic framework for, I would say, the better part of maybe 18 months. And I know it's been in your mind, sort of sifting and sorting for years and years and years. And like these big jigsaws, they take a while to kind of pull all the pieces together. Will you give us a sort of a snapshot of what you're calling it Project X? Um, maybe give us a snapshot of, of what Project X is. And like you said, it's, it's to create a more robust economy coming out of COVID. So how does it do that? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> for me, this has been going on, you know, for 10 years and, uh, and working in the private equity investment space, working in the incubator accelerator, um, academic entrepreneur space, um, and also being exposed to community economic development um, and local living economies and local investing. So it's just a big bucket of, of knowledge has kind of gone into the, you know, the top of the top of the funnel and Project X, what's really come out of the bottom. And, you know, just a bit of a background on the name that um, really Project X is a placeholder. So, you know, the idea is we're actually trying to affect a lot of different things. So, you know, everything starts as Project X and then it turns into, you know, pick a name. So, you know, Pacific School would have been Project X before it was Pacific School kind of thing. So that's the, the background of the name. And, you know, we always want to have a clever uh, story behind our, uh, behind our name. And for me, 
really what I wanted to do is I wanted to figure out how to put a round peg in a round hole. And so my kind of odyssey over the last decade um, has really been looking at impact investing, social entrepreneurship, um, funding for nonprofit or civil society, um, incubators, accelerators, entrepreneurship, early stage funding, venture capital, private equity, public equity. And, you know, it's just, I, I really saw um, a lot of inequalities and, and really the, you know, the main inequality is obviously social and environmental. And, you know, we're having this kind of massive awakening that, uh, you know, if we want the planet to be livable, that we actually have to change some of our own behaviors um, individually as, as well as society. And, uh, you know, and that social inequality around wealth, you know, that, uh, that COVID's really, you know, drawn a lens to that, that inequality. And, and, you know, we could go further into the inequality if we had more time around gender and, and uh, race and, you know, the, the, uh, the other parts of inequality. So I really wanted to figure that out. And when you start looking at the statistics and what's going on, you realize pretty quickly that it's explainable and, uh, and there is a solution. And, and I think Project X is, is you know, one of those solutions. And for us, there's an amazing amount of global thought leadership on these subjects from people that have written books, um, donut economy, mission economy. I mean, the list goes on. And what I realized was, is none of them actually had an executable strategy tied to them, right? They, they, they had very, these amazing- sort of Conceptual, right? Amazing. And so it's interesting because now people will say, well, have you read this book? Have you read that book? And, you know, what about this? And I think, no, actually, I don't have time for that. What I've done is I've agreed with all of them on principle. They're all good books. They're all smart people. They all have incredibly good ideas. But what we need is an executable plan. And for me, that's really where I want to focus 100% of my attention is to say, now that you've read the book, you know, what are you going to do? Well, here's the roadmap or the playbook or the plan to execute that. And, and you know, the, the, the really wonderful thing that organically has happened with Project X is it could be scaled internationally, nationally, regionally, um, locally, uh, right down to, you know, putting something into the, uh, into the school itself to, uh, you know, to really bring innovation forward and, uh, and, and put all those pieces around it that, that really talk to the, the equality that we're all looking for and, uh, you know, an improvement in well-being and, you know, as, as a lot of people say beyond GDP, right? What is the, what is, what is the economy doing to make the community well? And, uh, and for me, that's really the local living economy is what we need to focus on. Wow, like so much of what you are talking about, even that last thing, what, are, what, are, what is the economy doing that is making the community well? There's, you know, seven things that you talked about that tie directly to Psy and the, and the, the way that Jeff has um, shifted the model of education, right? Like Project X essentially is, uh, you know, like you say, a hands-on, you know, here's a practicable way to make change in our economy and the way things actually work. I'm taking what's in the books and I'm building a model that you can use. And Jeff, that's exactly what you've done with the Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry because, yeah, we've, we, and we've talked about this on the podcast, we have decades of research showing us what is appropriate for human learning. And yet there's all this sort of um, theoretical knowledge and nothing that was, well, not nothing, but only a very few things that were like a practical application. And you went and created a practi practical model that is replicable, that is scalable, that could work in different parts of the world. So the similarities between Project X and Psy are, I mean, that's part of why we've got you on today, Peter, is um, because this kind of thinking isn't just for economies, it's also for the education system. It's true. I think it's uh, philosophically really aligned too. Um, I know for us, it was very similar to what Peter said, lots of great books out there and, and you kind of have to agree with them all because they're smart people who are doing, saying good things. Um, um, we sometimes use the metaphor of the ornaments on a Christmas tree and um, 
there's a lot of really great ornaments and then we just needed a tree to put them on. Um, we, we, there, a lot of them were about, you know, you can do this inside the existing system, which is terrible. And he's like, well, if everybody's saying you can do this and I would do more, except the system's terrible, well, maybe we need to do something about the system. So um, the, for us, the practicable thing, but very, very similar, just in a different space from what, what Peter's proposing. And Project X is like very exciting because it's so simple, but so earth shattering at the same time. Um, that it was just like, okay, what are all the, what are all these best things? And if we actually did those good things in a good system, instead of in spite of a terrible one, wouldn't it be neat? And uh, so, and then you just have to actually do it. And people still argue with you because the ideas in books are always better than ideas that you actually try to put into practice. So um, that's also kind of fun, but it, it's, uh, you know, I have no problem having those conversations either with people. Yeah, you're temperamentally actually very suited for that, which is a relief because a lot of people, we were talking about this just before the, the, the episode um, started because, you know, there, once somebody steps outside the main ring and creates something different, everybody's standing there with their gun waiting to find that one little place where there's a chink in the armor and I'm going to shoot you dead, man. It's yep. like, wait. Yep, I love it. <laughs> you're, you're ready to go. You're always, you've always got your, you know, your reasonings lined up, but it really takes a strong person to, to, yeah, to stand up to this sort of general, what is it? Is it crabs in the bucket? Is this the phenomenon that people, it's like, we love our misery. We don't want it to end. Stop ending our misery. Get back in the bucket. Well, the other, the other, the other two things that are interesting to me is one, um, you know, has this been done somewhere else? Well, well, no, it's my, my own mind. It's my, my personality. Like I invented it, you know, and oh, and then the other one is we always like the experts from other countries. So, you know, and the greatest example of that is lean, the Toyota production system. You know, the guy went to every automotive maker in the U.S. They all turned him down. So he went to Toyota and suddenly Toyota's, you know, Toyota today because of an American, you know, thought leader and uh, and I feel that that's not nothing's new that uh, you know I'll end up in another country because my own uh, you know I'm not uh, interesting enough to my own culture and community you know? so well, you were so just fair. speaking of that a moment ago yeah. you know that this is a this is a concept that you have grown on turf here in British Columbia seated with the information the knowledge the conversations and the research well-credentialed people who were like asked to go and figure out the solutions yeah. and yet you bring the solution forward and everyone's like mm -hmm. <laughs> and so now you've got an audience in new york which is great but that's not in our backyard yeah. so yeah it's interesting yeah. and Jeff, you have you know you've collected people from well, tell me some of the countries that, you know where you've had really deep conversations with people about your model just anything that doesn't have British Columbia in the title or Canada. Yeah. Um, so the Netherlands is the most recent one. They, you know, we joke about it too, because, you know, they'll, they'll come here. And when people find out that someone from the Netherlands has been here looking at the school, then they take us more seriously. And, and then, and then when we talk to them, it's like, wow, those people in Canada are amazing. It's so funny. Like everyone's pretty insecure about their own, their own stuff. Human uh, or something. Yeah. It is yeah. like you have to leave home. You know, you got to leave your hometown in order for people to actually take you seriously. It's funny. Yep, it is. In a sad kind of way. Um, okay, Peter, I want to ask a little bit about, um, there's a few things that you've talked about. Um, one, well, one of the really, one of the things that has drawn a lot of your focus and thinking power is the fact that we do not have the right sort of stance uh, uh, on, or the right approach when it comes to um, fostering and supporting new ideas that will grow great businesses and that will give great jobs and that will then contribute back into the economy. And you have said before that there's far too much focus on this entrepreneurship, you know, far too much focus on, um, making entrepreneurs 
and that's actually not the direction we should be going in. So talk a little bit about what you've learned there. Yeah, so again, my experience working in that ecosystem with incubators and accelerators and entrepreneurs is what I really you know, realized was over 90% of the people I interacted with um, in my assessment were innovators. And they were being forced into entrepreneurship because there was no structure or model for them to take their innovation to, to move forward in a commercial um, fashion. What's, and, a, what's an example of that? Like when you say innovator, who's an innovator and how, like how would that person, you know, give us a concrete example of what that would look like for somebody who's like, I'm an innovator and yet I'm, I'm having to be an entrepreneur. I'll give you a great case study. So we're working with a scientist um, right now, Fadia, and she um, was one of the main scientists behind um, a pharmaceutical company that uh, that had a you know large success and um, Escrevia, and she wanted to get out of the regular regulatory industry and work in unregulated functional food. And so she has a PhD, she's a scientist. Um, she's worked in, in pharma for decades. And she also has just, just so happens to have an Ivy League MBA. And so she's more than capable of, of building a product and running a business. And she came to us and said, you know, I don't, I don't want to do the business part of it. And so she's really the best case study we could ever ask for because there's somebody that has all the credentials, capability, and you know, huge success. And she recognizes that she wants to do what she wants to do, which is innovate. And so by connecting her to the venture builder, she's spending all her energy um, designing water-soluble processes for natural ingredients that are found in nature. So um, Moringa is one of the ones we're working with. And so she's building a, a new process to, uh, you know, to basically be able to you know, pour these great things into water and stir them and drink them and, and not have to use a blender to, uh, you know, to work with them. And so she's a really good example of, of that. And then the other one is just the amount of entrepreneurs that, uh, you know, they're forced into entrepreneurship, um, you know, that, uh, that come from, say, the scientific university background, um, also the communities, you know, people working in their garage, and so I just saw it all day. I really saw it all day long. And I kept thinking to myself, this person is being asked to wear too many hats. And yeah, well, and I'm thinking immediately, you know, I'm drawing parallels to the approach that you take at Saija because, um, you know, when a learner shows up on your doorstep, you're not asking that learner to be the thing that the curriculum says they should be. You're actually asking that learner to be the thing that they're here to be, right? And so this woman, Peter, I didn't catch her name, say it again. Badia. Yeah, you said she wants to do what she wants to do, right? She doesn't, she's a scientist. She wants to nerd out on the on the learning and on the on the research and on the, the offerings and the benefits. She doesn't wanna be like doing the marketing and all that. And so Jeff, talk a little bit about how you know, that sort of, that's very much reflected in the way that Psy takes its approach to um, developing learners. It is. I think that's why um, the Project X concept is so interesting to me personally, because we're, we've almost been operating like a little mini informal Project X in some ways that we're, we're kind of like a wraparound service for people. It's like, you don't know how to make a website. That's okay. I'm going to show you enough, but then we're going to like all chip in and we'll get, we'll have a website for you. Don't worry. Um, but that real, that idea you had that is going to be on the website is what you can focus on the idea or whatever you know whatever it might be you're a musician don't worry about all the recording and stuff we'll show you a little bit but we'll take care of it with a team of people so that you can focus on creating your music um it's interesting that you mentioned Espriva because they we have some kids here whose whose parent is from that company and when even with the success they had which is some of the most successful pharmaceutical work in canadian history um and very ethical company, the things that they were doing, the actual specific thing that they were doing, they were on page, I don't know, like 29 or something of our local newspaper, didn't get mentioned for two seconds on any anything local at all, but recognized internationally for 
their their innovative thinking and their you know uh, the work that they did. So you know even in even the companies who are willing to do the entrepreneurship, like the whole deal, they uh, they don't often get recognized for for what they do. But so yeah, at least we can help people not have to do all the things themselves. We can help them uh, focus on the parts that got them into it in the first place. And then, yeah. uh, also, also just recognize the innovation in our own backyards, right? I mean, you know, the interesting thing is, is, is when you think about um, how much innovation's left on the ground. So I like to, you know, I like to kind of, you know, poke, poke the bear a little and say, I think there's billions of dollars on the ground at every Canadian university because there's just, there's no model for those innovators that don't want to be entrepreneurs to move forward. And so a lot of the applied research in our country, a lot of the public funding for applied research um, doesn't ever leave the, you know, the halls of, of academia um, because we don't have a model and, uh, and, and I find that really interesting and then take that into the community. So you think about that person that's like, well, I've got this really great idea, but I don't know where to do what to do with it or where to go, or I can't quit my day job. It just gets tossed to the side. So, you know, what would happen if we put a website up that everybody in Canada knew existed that said, tell us your good idea and we'll tell you if it's worth pursuing. I'm sure the, the volume would be shocking, you know, and, and suddenly you've got a whole new economy, right? I think you're right. I mean, we've got we've got just under 100 kids here, and we experience that literally every day. You, somebody has an amazing idea, and you kind of help them decide whether they want to go through with it right now or later or get yeah. someone else to do it, um, or or just sort of say, okay, let's get going. How do you, how do you want to start? And that's like that's every day. And that's yeah. just a little tiny school in little yeah. old Victoria. So yeah, you're right. That's, that's well, that's I can't believe we've put so much energy around the, this, you know, concept of entrepreneurship because that we're, we're a country of innovators and a country of educated business people. We need to match those specialties together and take entrepreneurship right out of the uh, right out of the the language and the equation, right? Yeah, and I think there's a there's a not uh, there's a conflation of the terms innovator and entrepreneur for those who aren't um, from a business background, right? Like actually, Peter, before I started going deep on conversations with you about this, I kind of thought they were the same things too. And through talking with you, I realized, oh, an innovator is this person who comes up with the idea, um, whereas the entrepreneur will take an idea and make it into a business you know or like commercialize it but i do think unless people you know it's like unless they have an interest in that area they they don't really know the difference between those terms so this is a very valuable conversation to be having and jeff yeah you, you another another way of looking at it is everybody's an innovator. everybody's an innovator and we all have a creative artistic bend yeah. to ourselves yeah. so if you if you just focus on your art and your craft and your innovative mind, not worrying about the business side of it. And then this group of business people come along and parachute in and, and uh, you know, do something with that idea. That just seems like a, a round peg in a round hole to me. And so um, what's the word I want to use? Uh, not redeeming, gratifying, reaffirming, affirming, right? And that, that's sort of what happens with young people when they go to your school, Jeff, right? Like, they arrive, you know, and when they first arrive, sometimes they don't even know what they're interested in. But once they figure out they're allowed to be interested in something, they're allowed to be creative in some area, and how can we support you? That's really freeing. And the reason they don't even know what they're drawn to when they show up at your doorstep is because our, our mainstream system kind of drums that out of them, right? Drums the curiosity and the creativity back to Ken Robinson's epic TED talk, right? Schools kill creativity. So this is, both of you are speaking about things that um, free innovators into that creative space and then equip them with people who will support them in making their innovation become a real thing. It's interesting that you say that because um, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, we just had our new group in who are coming next year because of the pandemic, we decided instead of having them all come for individual visits and you know 
you know, be around a hundred strangers, which isn't a very good idea from a health perspective. They, they came in together so we could spread them all out all over the place, just 30 kids. And um, they, we started the inquiry process with them just to give them a sense of what it's like. And at first they, they can't do it because they don't believe that they're actually allowed to be curious about anything that they're actually curious about. So you have all kinds of trick questions we have to ask them. Like um, I have to say, if you weren't at school, what would you be doing? Um, and, things, and things like that. And then they're like, then they're like kind of shyly writing in the smallest lettering you could possibly write um, what they're, the thing that they're interested in because they don't want to, they don't want to talk about it. Um, the other side of that is once they get interested, like you were saying, Alex, they find out, sometimes they find out for the first time what they are actually really, really deeply interested in and, and what they, where they can innovate. Then the other end of it is they start to worry about because all their friends are in these lockdown systems in other places and they're thinking, oh no, have I ruined my life by pursuing these things that I'm really passionate about and good at? Because it doesn't look like maybe it matches with the way the world is set up. And then this is where, you know, this is where Peter comes in sometimes too, like literally comes in and talks to people and talks about all these unusual pathways that are not going to show up in your, your typical, um, you know, counseling software that says this these courses equal this job, which is not really true anyway. Um, anyway, yeah, so there's, there's a whole bunch of components to it that are support for people to feel okay about what they're doing. So I, I just wanted to add to that in the, in the non um, high school world, when they go into the adult world, the question I use is, you know, what would you do if you, if money wasn't an object with your business or what would you do if you had $5 million? And it's, it really is quite interesting how many people get stuck on that question because you've released them of all their limitations. And yeah. I, I've watched people have panic attacks when I've said that to them, yeah. you know, and, uh, and it's really, it's interesting that that never ends, you know. Yeah, that's actually a key question in coaching. What, what if, um, you know, power, money or time were no object? Right. People just aren't accustomed to taking that, you know. I'd be working on Project X. Yes. <laughs> you know what, what's interesting about that question is that um, sometimes like, and this is kind of goes right back to what you're saying, Peter, about the difference between an innovator and an entrepreneur is if you're using your innovation to try to be a good entrepreneur um, because of all the limitations and your, yeah. your innovation is actually being used to try to address the limitations. When someone says there aren't any, it's almost shocking because it's like, that's what you've been doing like that's actually what you've been spending maybe 90 percent of your time on and then a little tiny little bit on the, the reason why you actually started the venture in the first place yeah. and so it's kind of a shock when you yeah. get to actually focus all your time on the thing that you actually cared about in the first place well and i think the other thing with entrepreneurship and innovation and, and we haven't even touched on it yet but is the idea of social innovation and social entrepreneurship so you know what we really want to do is push this one step further and really look at stakeholder value and uh, versus shareholder value. So what if we, you know, start these learners off at a younger age, um, introducing them to, you know, a bigger worldview to say, how would you apply innovation um, with a business tactic to social issues? And, and I think that's really, you know, the next level of, of thinking is to say, you know, how do what parts of society don't work for young learners or young people? Um, what's the innovation? And is there a commercial model there that we could actually export to other jurisdictions? You know, it, it really is that simple. So this, like I say, we just have to take this concept of limitations, which is what I think entrepreneurship has done because we're not a culture of entrepreneurship and focus and, and you know, Alex, you said, let innovators be creative. I would say it's the other way around. Let artists and, and creatives be innovative. Mm. You know, like, like we're all, we're, we have 30 million creators in Canada. We have five entrepreneurs. Yeah. It just, it's, it's how you frame it in your mind, right? Well, I want to ask, Peter, you just said we're not a culture of entrepreneurship. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why not? Yeah. What's different about Canada in particular? Our post-secondary education. So we have such a strong, um, robust post-secondary system. So for you guys as parents, think about this, you know, if you're advising and, you know, you're designing what you want your child, child's future to be, you know, you're going to think, uh, you know, you're going to think, okay, well, 
really, I, I, you know, we all want, we all want people to, you know, to get as much education as they can at a young age. And so entrepreneurship is really a culture of, of immigration mm -hmm. and a culture of lower class. And so it's really out of desperation. So in a, in a country of middle-class people, um, wealthy immigrants for the most part and education yeah. There's no, there's really no reason to be an entrepreneur. So what I find really interesting in Canada today is that entrepreneurship has become quite trendy. So I have friends that are medical doctors and specialists that want to be entrepreneurs. And the reason why is because they want to control their own time. So, so what we need is to let them control their own time as innovators because they have this massive specialty but we need the business people to actually commercialize the ideas that they benefit from um, as they bring their gifts into society. But for us to, uh, you know, to, to think we have a culture of entrepreneurship. So why is the United States the way it is? Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't realize that the United States is a third world country and mm -hmm. a first world country within the same legislative process. And mm -hmm. so some of the worst ghettos in the world are next to some of the wealthiest people in the world. And we don't have as much as that. Now we're getting more of it as the fabric rips in Canada. But we, we didn't have that um, for the last 150 years. We had such a strong middle class. And, you know, so in, in the U.S., you know, to get out of that third world into the first world, there was just such an appetite and so much competition because of population to, uh, you know, to be entrepreneurial. And, you know, the American dream, as it's called, it's all very explainable. And so what, what happened in Canada is we saw the success of our, our neighbors and we all said, well, why don't we do what they're doing? You know, why don't we the Silicon Valley of the North or, you know, all these buzzwords. And what people don't realize is, is you can't copy a model or the model um, because it, we don't have the same motive. We don't have the same competition. We don't have the same motivation around poverty and immigration. And we don't have the same um, deployment of investment and the infrastructure of wealth vehicles to do what they do there. So, so Silicon Valley is so unique to Silicon Valley that everybody's always trying to replicate it when they really need to create a model that works for themselves. And that's why I always say it's a square peg in a round hole. We've been jamming this square peg in a round hole hoping it'll fit because we haven't designed a made in Canada solution that fits our needs, our values, our economics. And, uh, and Project X is that, uh, you know, that's the thesis is to say, this is very much a made in Canada solution that can scale from the most rural remote community to the largest, you know, cities. And, and the framework is, is the same regardless of where you put it in place. Wow, you've done more thinking on this since we last connected. That is a very true, like it's different soil, right? Just totally different cultural contexts. I, I just want to ask you, Peter, um, what website can people go to if they want to A, learn more about your thinking or B, argue with you? <laughs> I can see some people going, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, love, I love talking about this and uh, I see it like making a film. So, you know, I always use this analogy that you really want to do all the pre-production work because once you actually start rolling the film, it's very expensive. And so the more anybody I mean anybody any age any person anywhere in the world can challenge this idea add to it comment on it question it and uh, you know and that's how we improve it and it's open source so you can you can copy it you could implement it yourself um, you know like it's it's kind of our gift to you know to, from based on our experience and yeah we really want to engage people so so really the the fastest way to engage with me would be on LinkedIn. So it's just search um, Peter Elkins, E-L-K-I-N-S. Um, I do have my own website, which is peterelkins.ca. And, uh, and then we will have a website in, you know, this month coming up. Um, yeah. that, that website is theprojectxway.com. So theprojectxway.com. And, and that, that'll, get, that'll be live this month. 
Awesome. But I, I highly encourage people to ask questions, um, give me scenarios. I love working with scenarios. It's like, here's what's going on in my school, my community. You know, here's what I think, you know, how would we fix this? And, you know, we're here to solve wicked problems. So if you can find, like, if you have an experience in healthcare, education, food security, government, like we want to understand these problems because, you know, one of the things I've been, I've been talking about is this tri-sector leadership model where, mm -hmm. to me, the biggest opportunity for economic growth in a, in a mindful, equitable way is our own public institutions. So if you think about it, if we could go into our own public institutions, correct get the round peg in the round hole, discover new solutions, and then export them to other jurisdictions, we'd not only fix our own problems, we'd create a new economy. And, you know, to me, the biggest opportunity right now is in healthcare, because healthcare is bankrupting public sectors in every jurisdiction in the world. It's just getting more and more expensive to operate. And, you know, somebody said in the US, they said, we don't have a healthcare crisis, we have a pharmaceutical crisis. And, you know, and everyone kind of laughs and nods when you talk about this, but we really do have to collectively um, be allowed to go into our own public systems and look for opportunities, not only to fix our, our challenges, but also export them. So government, um, you know, like the amount of untapped resources to create new economies right now in our own public service is incredible because everybody in the world's looking for digital transformation with government without losing jobs, government sector jobs. So we need to redefine work, but we also need to digitize. And if we do that, that suddenly puts our little community on the global scale. And we're now exporting that knowledge and those services and that, and that technology to everyone else in the world. And, and to me, it's actually a race um, for things like healthcare and, and gov of tech or health tech as it's called and then you could take that into ag tech or agriculture and food security i mean we are are really not doing a good job of managing our own agricultural lands um and I, you know i said two studies i'd love to see is one one study is what do we import to canada so how could we create businesses just by reducing the import and two what is the um, consumer retail wealth through wealth managers that's leaving the country um, through, through their wealth manager into, into foreign public equities? Because that's the money we need to invest in our own country to get all this stuff going so we can export more unique, useful products than just more toys and widgets and, you know, and, and, and consumer goods, like, like, you know, actual real value. And, uh, and then the other one's fintech, like, the, you know, the pensions in Canada are world leaders and, you know, we could be going in and designing fintech solutions in our own pension funds and, uh, and then exporting those solutions. Uh, that, would that would literally solve Calgary's, you know, dilemma with all the, all the office space and no more oil and gas, you know, sands. Like that could become a fintech center of Canada just around you know, fintech and pensions. And, uh, and it just, the list goes on and on and on of, of these opportunities that really aren't being exploited. So we need to, we need to move away from resource and really get into value add. And, and the value add that's really untapped is in education, agriculture, food security, um, <clears throat> healthcare, gov government operations. And nobody's even, nobody's even talking about this at, at this point. There's so much, there's so, you know, it's like, um, there's got to be a metaphor for this, you know, I guess the spider web, I'll just go with the, the usual one, but you pull on one little piece of the web and you realize that every part of the web is connected, right? And it's just, it's so much more than just jobs and innovation and entrepreneurship and commercializing products. It's like, it, and it's like education, Jeff, right? Like every piece and every part reaches out and connects with every other part and when you change one there's you know there's a networked effect I can see why both of you I would love to like have you each do your Clifton strengths or something <laughs> how do you overlap because I can see why you are both so enjoying you know like 
bouncing ideas off of each other. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, you have said that Peter has come into Psy before to talk with your learners. So tell, yeah. tell me a little bit about, you mentioned it a bit, but what, what are these conversations? Well, it's actually funny, uh, and I don't know if Peter will even remember this, although I'm betting he will, but um, some of them have been kind of formal where, where he's coming in to, for that express purpose. So he's helped a, a learner start a small business, um, and it was more than just start a small business. It was even just thinking about what does it mean to even have an establishment that people come into and branding and, and welcoming people in, and how do you get merchandise in your store without having any money, and like all, all of these really really tricky challenges and it was really successful um life-changing for, for that person and actually others who were around it and then there's the informal which was we met on a ferry one time and talked we talked with three or four kids and you just visited simon fraser university um and it was a really disappointing trip to be honest and there's nothing take nothing away from simon fraser just it was not as inspiring as we'd hoped it would be and, and we had a few kids there who were really hoping to go into a program where they could be innovators and they didn't see it there. And they were kind of coming back feeling, you know, not sad or anything, but just like, eh. <laughs> we were on the ferry and talking and um, just the conversation with Peter could have been the field trip. It was fantastic. Um, one girl in particular is very, very interested in um, uh, sort of the slow food movement and, and you know, food security and all these things. And I think, I don't know how many people you connected her with just in a 10 minute conversation on the ferry and then even later, we saw you in the street and you remembered her name and connected with a chef. And this was like months later. So we call you the super connector around here. Um, but but just you just help people think about things in a way that they often haven't thought of them before. And they make connections that um, a lot, in high school, a lot of times we put pressure on kids to think that all they're doing here is preparing for the future. And they are preparing for the future, but they also have a life right now. And um I think you kind of help them see that you don't have to like give up your life now to have a better one later. Um, and, and that also that the two are connected, that there's a line you can draw between them. So anyway, I, I just really appreciate that when you talk to kids, because I watch you enjoying yourself. I think at least it looks like I, it. I, I, see yeah, them yeah. Light up. So. Yeah. I, uh, I, I love talking about business ideas and economic development and community. Well, one of the one of the most interesting pieces of this whole um, this whole um, I keep using puzzle. I gotta I gotta come up with a different a different uh, metaphor. But I mean, Peter, you actually are an unconventional learner. You, I mean, you you probably qualify as you would have been a perfect fit at Psy as a young person because you. Um, have done such a huge diversity of things in your professional career from like starting out as a paramedic, but then becoming a, a, a consultant at a global management consulting firm. And now, like I said, you're associate faculty at a university. You don't have a post-secondary pedigree. Um, and yet you, you have followed your interests and pursued the things that what would you say? Are they the things that light your fire or whatever it is? You've just followed those things that you find intellectually rewarding. And you've ended up creating this incredible career and becoming a mentor to, you know, Jeff's learners, but also really sort of, let's hope, moving the needle out there in the world. So yeah, talk, talk a little bit about your, your zigzag. Yeah, <laughs> there's a great slide that uh, I use with, with the students at the university that, you know, shows that what people think it is, is a straight line. And what it is, is this, you know, crazy curly line. And I know a lot of business schools use that slide. Yeah, I was thinking about when you, when you were saying that, that um, one of the things that really kind of sticks out for me is, I, I'm going to use the word injustice because it's a powerful world word. And so, Based on my communities, um, my family, um, you know, my history, I think I have a real strong um, kind of version of right and wrong. And, you know, and I think that's where a lot of my thinking comes from is that, you know, like when I was a paramedic, um, you know, I think, well, Firefighters need more training, 
like, why aren't we training them? And then I'd ask somebody and they'd say, oh, well, it's a union thing and a government thing and a this thing. And, a, and it's like, yeah, but they still need more training. <laughs> and like, I, I just, I, I refuse to be, you know, kind of pigeonholed or, or forced into something I didn't agree with. And, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and the story that that's really probably the most kind of profound is, so I, I grew up in a rural community on Hornby Island. And um, a group of us as teenagers um, just had this crazy idea to start a mountain bike festival. And in a community like that, you have no regulations, no law enforcement at the time, they have summer there now, and a lot of really liberal parents that, uh, you know, you're free range, you know, kids. And so there was no barriers put in front of us. And so, you know, the first year was kind of our buddy that had a, a garage band and, you know, car headlights and, and uh, you know, and the mountain bike scene from, you know, Vancouver Island. And, uh, you know, and, and, and it was pretty haywire. It was, you know, it was probably about as haywire as it can get. And, you know, we had a lot of fun and nobody seemed to complain. And then the next year, the touring bands started asking if they could come play because they were looking for venues. So suddenly we were getting these like, um, you know, I'm trying to think, oh, the guy's names escape me now, but like a famous, you know, Canadian musician wants to come play. He doesn't realize we're kids, right? <laughs> he thinks we're festival organizers. And, uh, and then um, somebody from um, Norco Bicycles heard about it. So they wanted to get involved and, uh, you know, and this was before Whistler had a bike park. Like this was, you know, we, we basically were, were ahead of the mountain bike curve. And, you know, over the years, this grew into one of the biggest, most successful mountain bike music festivals. Um, you know, and it's, it's really, it's known around the world. And, uh, and, it, and it's so funny that a group of teenagers, and I think a lot of it was, is that we just, we just did what we thought was right, you know, and, and, and we were responsible. Like we weren't, you know, we had like, we had security, but it was some of our friends that were a big, bigger and tougher, you know, like we'd kind of go find the bully and say, we need you to help us, you know, go stand at the door because everyone's scared of you, you know? So we had a, you know, we weren't completely here. And I think that's just gone on in my whole life. And, and so like the reason I left the ambulance service wasn't because I didn't really enjoy being a paramedic. It's because the system was so incapable of delivering good customer service that, uh, you know, that it just didn't, it didn't fit for me and I, I couldn't affect change in the role I was in. And so from there, I, uh, at the time I was, I was, uh, I'd actually invented a little first aid kit that I sold through outdoor retail stores because I realized the kits in the workplace and the kits in the in in the outdoor stores were very much about band-aids and if somebody actually had a serious trauma they really didn't have the right equipment so I made this you know kind of what I thought was a great first responder kit for workplace and outdoor and you know and that took off and uh, it was called guts g-u-t-z and I mean to me it was just kind of like a funny a fun little project that took off and uh and, you know, and that's when I think I really realized that being my own boss just suited my personality better. And it's the same with learning, you know, like, if you tell me I have to take a course to graduate, but I don't see the value in that course, I just can't do it, you know, and, and I think that's gone on and gone on. And so when I worked in the consulting space, it was, you know, again, these are, you know, these are things that kind of happened to me is I got headhunted by the boss of a Fortune 2000 company to roll out a global program that I'd never done before. And he trusted me and let me do it my own way. And, you know, it was a, it was a success and it took two years to do. But the reason it was a success is because the guy I worked for was a just a stellar human being that you know emulated servant leadership like nothing I've ever seen I'm sure he knew exactly what was going on the whole time but you never knew it mm -hmm. and uh, you know and and he let me 
be the best I could be. And I think that, uh, you know, I think for me that uh, I really encourage people to, you know, I believe in academia, I believe in school, I encourage people to, you know, I, I think the university experience is one of the best experiences you can ever have in your life, um, socially and, and personally. But at the end of the day, you know, we need to understand there's a lot of alternatives to, uh, you know, to, to going to school and, and learning that way. And, and uh, you know, and, and I think it's very strange the position I'm in today, considering where I was as a, as a you know, teenager, um, you know, struggling with a five hour commute to school. You know. Well, and, uh, you know, like um, your story, I think would be, you know, if you haven't shared it with learners at Jeff's school, you should make another date to go in and hang out and just talk to people about your path because, you know, Jeff, you've got a lot of learners who take unconventional paths out of SCI. Like once they graduate, they're off into their own businesses, for goodness sake. They're not really looking at that traditional post-secondary pathway that so many middle-class families uh, go for. Yeah, some, some are and some aren't. And they even look at post-secondary differently. Like it's funny what you're saying, Peter, about if you make me take a course, they'll look at a university program and they go, eh, I like that part and that part, not so keen on that part. And then they go and start negotiating with like admissions officers to say, can I do these parts? I don't really want to do those parts. And, um, you know, some of the, some post-secondary is like, sure. Other ones are like, nope. And then they go, okay, I'm not going there. And we, yeah, we fed that, yeah. I, so this is the thing about the evolution of, of inquiry-based learning that, you know, interdisciplinary is, is, a, is a step but it's actually a menu that you have to choose from. And so when I looked at the programs where I'm at and, and I said, you know, this, is, this isn't interdisciplinary enough. Yeah. Um, and then the, the other one is this new kind of micro-credentialing, you know, that, that, that that's, again, it's not enough. Like, I love the idea of saying, I want to pursue X and I'm going to design my own path forward with good, you know, good coaching and, and advising. But what does that path look like? Because I think, you know, I think we're behind in Canada. Like, you know, I talked to a guy the other day that has a, you know, he's got a psychiatry and a neuroscience um, fellowship, you know, and, and he said, there's only 300 of them in the world. And I said, well, that's not enough. Like, you know, so, so, you know, we don't have enough psychiatrists in Canada to begin with, let alone having a, this double fellowship. And I'm like, we need to, we need to get that number up to 30,000 because this is where we need to put our energy in the next decade is really in, in, in the mind. Like this is the future of how we're going to evolve because, you know, we, the stuff that's going on with magnetic therapy around depression, like non-invasive um, treatment of depression. And he was saying, you know, clinically um, analysis or, or psychology or psychiatry said it takes too long and pharmaceuticals are too invasive. And so, you know, we really do need 30,000 neuroscientists that understand psychiatry to, uh, you know, to figure out, you know, how to eliminate anxiety and depression from, you know, from Western society, you know, and, and it's coming like it's, so it's coming in 15 years. How do we get it to come in two? We get more people to pursue this kind of K to 12 education, right Hopkins? <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Right. Yep. Just thinking, thinking. Uh, just what Peter was saying about all the reasons why you can't train the paramedics and all the reasons why you still have to, or the firemen, you have, you, you, it doesn't matter what all the reasons, excuses are, you still have to do it. And so it, if you tr teach people to say, what does the world need right now? What, what do you need right now? Yeah. That's what you should probably do then. <laughs> like yeah. figure, figure out a way to do it. And we'll try and to help that, you. And that, and that goes back to what I was saying about, we have to get inside the system to figure out what's needed like i really am fascinated when i watch the government facilitate and convene these conversations about labor and 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 job and industry and it, it it it's to me it's still disjointed you know like how do you how do you say you know what what are the what are the they call them wicked problems i don't know where that came from but like what are society's wicked problems so you know for me let's start with equality i'd like to see I don't want taxes to increase. What I want to see is more voluntary taxes. Um, how do we do that? That's a wicked problem. So what if what if we paid? Uh, what if we had more social services, more more public services, more public ownership? 
um, with less taxes because we've designed a system that works that way. And, you know, and, uh, and Zita Cobb was saying to me the other day, she said, you know, it really matters who owns what, you know, like we really need to actually understand that. And that's a big question. So yeah, you, you got me really excited suddenly where I think, what if we put these wicked problems in inquiry-based students' minds, you know, now you're, now you're working at a thousand RPM, not 10 RPM. Absolutely. And I, bet, I bet you it's those unbridled minds that would actually come up with the solution. Yes. Because they haven't been institutionalized for 25 years being a bureaucrat. Right. That's why, you know, we know that young people are idealistic because they haven't yet run into all the walls that say you can't do this, right? They have way fewer limiting beliefs. Like there is the adage that youth is wasted on the young is correct only because they don't, you know, there's no, um, there's no crucible that really supports their ability to use that naivete in a powerful way to just keep asking questions and keep asking what works and what's needed. And actually when they do ask these things in the mainstream system, they're seen as, what's the word, Jeff? Insubordinate, right? Or insolent. And that that was what caught you. You're you're deemed a troublemaker. But I think that that is actually kind of, you know, you could even start with the firefighter question. It's like, you know, how do we get firefighters better trained? You know, <laughs> just imagine those conversations. <laughs> it's a great conversation. It's funny what you say about the naivete too, um, is that um, I know um, uh, in high school, kids are much more kind of open-minded and ready to just kind of think openly than maybe older people who've been more institutionalized. But even by high school, we see some learners who've been in the system who are already beginning to feel like they're in a track and that there's edges to their thinking. Um, if you ask a typical kid in kindergarten, um, if you went, went to any kindergarten class and said, who, who in here is a singer? Everybody puts their hand up, everybody, every single person, because they can sing they, or they will sing. You know, It doesn't matter what kind of singer. But if you go into a grade 12 classroom and you say, who in here is a singer? You might see one or two hands go up because they've already started to discriminate between good and bad singers, serious about singing, not serious about singing, studied it, didn't study it, and, and it, it, it's already limited. So we have to do a little bit of work to um, get back the freedom that they actually have, but then they, it doesn't take that long, and then they, they away they go again. Wow. Okay, so that brings up, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here that I tried to bring up with Alex a while ago. So I want to see inquiry-based teachers. Absolutely. So- so, you know, like I'm, I was saying to her about a teacher in high school that was a really good guitar player and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and very passionate about it. And one of his roles in the school was to, you know, he had a group of disenfranchised learners that, you know, just had to show up to class and, uh, you know, he almost just sat there for an hour. And I thought, what if he taught them all to play guitar? That would have been a better use of their time. So I thought, how do we get teachers and you could even say adults, like bureaucrats, how do we get these people to actually have their own reverse inquiry where they're saying, here's the skill I'm really passionate about and good at, I'm gonna bring that into society, you know? So what does that look like? Anyway, it's a bit abstract, but- uh, I love that. When I, when I started teaching, uh, I had been a teacher for one year and they brought in a new curriculum, it was in 1994 and um, yeah. they, they uh, part of it had a bunch of stuff in it about applied skills and fine arts. Everybody lost their mind because it changed how the timetable was set up, and it was everybody was crazy. And I was a new teacher, and so I was like, "Hey, what about this?" And we started this thing called um, contact time, where every teacher in this high school of about I don't know about a thousand kids um, talked about what things they were really good at and passionate about. And so we had our chemistry teacher was teaching uh, fly tying. Um, yeah, our physics teacher was doing uh, pop up books, and. Yeah. Uh, and kids loved it. And it was just, it was just a little tiny, it was a block X in the middle of the week. And yeah. for about an hour, you'd go to this thing and you'd sign up for whatever. And you'd see all these teachers unearthing all the things they really loved to do or that they were learning about or thinking about. Um, and the kids got to kind of share in their inquiry with them. And it, it was phenomenal. And it ended up working after people started to give it a chance. It, it actually was, was good. Yeah. All right. Good. Well, let's do more of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it should be, and that's why we, in our school, that's kind of what we're trying to do all yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's, it's way more fun too. 
for everybody. Yeah, your 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 teachers are very good at taking that stance of curiosity and openness and learning and sharing with and participating with learners, right? Like, you know, I'm yeah. thinking of my own son who is in a band with one or two of your teachers yeah. who are right in there with the learners, right? They're right in there with the kids. Yeah, they're learning too. We have a, an ASL teacher who's learning ASL. So she, um, teacher here who's facilitating the learning of ASL with a teacher from Island Deaf and Hard of Hearing, which is an external resource, but they need a teacher to help because they're not teachers. Um, but our, so our teacher is learning ASL while she's helping other people learn ASL. Um, and she's becoming quite an expert at it. So they're watching her learn the same thing they're learning um, at, while she's teaching it to them. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, no. it's an unconventional right. thing for, um, for teachers to, you know, as visualized as subject, subject matter experts for all these years, right? To sort of flip the switch and, yeah, no, I don't actually have to have all the answers. Nope, you don't at all. You just have to have all the questions. Well, not all the questions. You just have to have questions. <laughs> These two guys have all the answers, people. So um, please do visit peterelkins.ca for more information from this brilliant thinker. And of course, as always, uh, www.learningstorm.org for uh, Jeff's school, a lot of the materials that Jeff has used to build out this paradigm. Um, yeah, so let's keep the learning going and maybe we'll reconvene for another conversation down the road. That would be nice. We kind of overflowed the cup on this one. Be nice we to did. Keep going. Yeah, <laughs> we could going. talk. We just brushed the, uh, brushed the surface anytime. I love talking to you guys. Well, Great. thank you. It's been good to have you and uh, yeah, we'll have you again. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. <laughs>